Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Stompcast with me, Dr. Alex George. This is the podcast where I go for a walk with a guest and take a little wander into their life. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Karen. We're in Greenwich Park today, where it is white, and it's white with snow. It's one of the rare times I've ever seen London snowy. It's incredible, and all around me right now is beautiful, snowy, white picturesque scenery so it's absolutely incredible and I'm really really excited to have Dr Karen with us today. Dr Karen is not only an NHS surgeon he's also a lecturer at University of Sunderland and has a social media following of over five million on TikTok which he built by showing health tips medical knowledge to educate and entertain his audience. We're about to get stuck into the stomp this week but I'd first like to chat about our sponsors Fitflop were helping me to move better with supportive, comfortable and scientifically tested footwear. Now, after I've been on a good long stomp, I don't want to take my flip-flops off and put on a subpar pair of slippers after being so comfortable. Luckily for us, Fitflop have thought about this and have an amazing range of slippers and slides that are perfect for lounging around the house. Their range of men and women's slippers have contoured footbeds and are made with incredibly soft materials to make sure your feet feel great. I can't vouch for the women's shoe shearling slides myself, but wow, they look like absolute heaven to slip into after a stomp. They have triple density micro wobble technology, which basically means they absorb shock and diffuse underfoot pressure. There you go, micro wobbled. What a dream. And for men's, there's plenty to choose from, including the amazing eye cushion technology, ultra light, super sleek cushioning that's ergonomically shaped for all day comfort. So if you've upped your stomping game, but your slipper game is weak, head over to fitflop.com. Welcome to the Stompcast. Beautiful. What a what a beautiful day. We have ne- we've done all kinds of conditions. This is the first snowcast. Beautiful. I love it. I it's love nice, it. isn't it? I love the snow. You know, it's freezing. It's horrible to drive, but it's nothing better than just being in the snow. I love it. It's a it's a it's a beautiful day. And I have to ask you. Come on, let's do a bit of a test. You're you're a man of facts. We're walking along. Can it, can people hear this? bit of a crunching snow what is that but it's a clinical sign isn't it well i, I hope i hope i'm thinking right in that it's a surgical emphysema yes yeah? indeed yeah. or I like you t- it's a bubble wrap isn't it like the other way yeah you right? pop the bubble wrap paper what it's is surgical um, emphysema well you know someone's um got gas from you know where it's not meant to be essentially in the soft tissue they get this kind of crunchy you know honeycomb snow crunching sensation and it's not a good sign but you you get it after laparoscopic surgery sometimes i've seen it Uh, but yeah it can be very worrying isn't it funny we have so many different like phrases in medicine to like describe like clinical things i'm trying to think of like other ones we've got we've got the most disgusting one is uh, red currant jelly stool. Ah, yes. food when they're thinking That's for babies, isn't it? That's for... Is that for babies? What's that? Uh, interception in babies. That's it, interception in babies. Yeah, you learn all these kind of different ones for it. Like, oh, that's horrible, um, isn't it? Maple syrup, urine disease. I remember in my medical school finals, I had that in the exam. Some congenital genetic disorder. 
yes. What do you think of these? I, d I, I don't know, but actually, do you know what? I quite The funny thing is, you think of crunching snow and you think that was a nice thing, but yeah, really it's, it's actually not as romantic as it sounds. Yeah. You, you might die. But anyway, welcome, welcome to, to the Stompcast. Do you, do you enjoy a bit of a stomp walk? Is it part of your routine? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I've only enjoyed it a lot more since getting my dog Shadow. Your dog's beautiful, by the way. We've seen oh, him on the TikTok. Yeah. I'm trying to get him in more of my videos, but sometimes oh, he's more very... likes, hundred percent, more views and likes to the dog, hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. But he's very uh, non-copied, of course. He enjoys he enjoys a walk with you. Yeah, so we luckily, you know, because I live in Hampshire, lots of nice forests and scenery around. I just take him out for an hour walk every day when it's not horrible weather, and yeah, I mean, it just gives me a break from whatever I'm doing, whether yeah. it's social media or work. Do you do a lot of steps in the hospitals? I remember when I was doing. I remember actually. Um, I'm obsessed with steps at the moment. Yeah. I've got my Fitbit on. Um, when uh, when I was in Kings, I was doing my F1, and it's a huge hospital. And I, my God, I didn't have to do some steps there. Really? Wow. Yeah. Do you get many steps in a shift? Obviously, not when you're doing a long surgery or more stationary yeah. or more static. So on a surgery day, I, I'll probably just barely get a few thousand. But on on core day, when I'm running around like a headless chicken, yeah, I'll be pushing 20k steps, which is not bad. Cool. That's, the, that's good. That's yeah. the silver lining of doing a that's busy back and forth down to A and E up to the wards and oh, all that kind gosh. of stuff. But for people listening, maybe give an idea. It'd be nice to give an idea of, uh, I guess, your background in terms of what you do. Because people hear, like, general surgeon. It's probably, it's the most stupid term, really, because it's so general. It doesn't yeah, really tell yeah. anything, does it? It's no, kind exactly, of vague. Yeah. What does it mean to be uh, a general surgeon? What is an on-call? What is a normal day for, for you? So general surgery uh, in the UK, certainly, it means basically abdominal surgery. Uh, anything to do with the abdomen, sometimes the chest, depending on which hospitals you live in, hernia operations, appendixes, bowel cancers, all sorts. On-call shift would be sort of at 8 to 8, either night or day, and basically anyone with abdominal pain that's in the hospital, you're probably going to see them. Anyone with bleeding from the bottom end, you'll see them. Anyone who's not opened their bowels for several days, you'll see them. So you see a lot of common things you see trauma as well don't you of course because yeah. we do depending on where you work out so i did i say my f1 in um kings and i um as part of the rotation as a you know, f1 doctor oh, yeah. um i did a general surgery and trauma so oh, wow. i loved it because obviously it's kind of great because an f1 realistically like if there's a trauma going on you're just like say ordering the scans or yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever but it's kind of nice because you get to see what happens don't you, you kind of see them folding and you know that it's the general surgeon that will will often lead that, isn't it? Together with the orthopaedic surgeons, the bone doctors and yeah. the any doctor as well. It's quite scary because, um, you know, you often see people with multiple injuries and they come to maybe your hospital, which is not maybe a trauma center, and you have to almost patch them up as much as you can and send them on their way to a specialist center. Or if you're in the specialist center, you've got to go on and fix it. And, uh, you know, we mentioned the crunching snow earlier. And um, actually a couple of weeks ago when I was on call, I saw someone who didn't have any breath sounds in their chest and they had that crunching snow thing. Pretty obviously they had rib fractures mm. and a collapsed lung. Mm. And right there and then you just have to put in a chest drain, a yeah. tube, a plastic tube into their lung. And it's, it's quite scary making a hole in someone's chest yeah. and putting a tube in there. It doesn't seem very doctory and like you're attacking someone, but you know, it can, it saves their lives. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of like, it, it depends who you end up doing, but I certainly, I think, People often don't realise how many like different skills you need, whether that be in A and E or in general surgery. You you know you have to know a bit about everything. For example, on call um, depends where you are. You might be responsible for dealing with people with twisted testicles. For God, example. yeah. Um, so the surgery really is general. <laughs> it's so general, and you know nowadays 
the kind of twisted testicle would usually go to the urologist. Yes. It's become specialised, but just a few years ago... You never know, though. You, might, you never know what's going to happen. You might be the one that has to you, source it. No, exactly. I mean, the current hospital I'm working in now, if someone comes in with a twisted testicle, I'm the first person who has to sort of deal with them. And, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you've essentially got a stopwatch as soon as you see them yeah. or as soon as you've heard that they've come in with a two-hour history of this you've yeah. got six hours overall including the two hours that they've already wasted coming in to untwist their testicle yeah. it cuts um, off the blood supply it. doesn't it you can lose yeah. it and and uh, yeah not not good so any not fellas good. if you if you if you have a sudden onset severe pain go and get that checked out rather urgently i'd say isn't it and yeah if you don't have the cremasteric reflex i love that <laughs> Stroke your inner thigh, and if your testicles don't rise up, then there you go. You can test. See, diagnostic. So we've got uh, Ella's joining me as a new assistant. She never thought we'd talk about a cremasteric reflex today, did she? Uh, there you go. There, there, there are start. thousands of young men stroking their thighs, thighs as right they're now listening to, to, this. To, to see that it's true. Absolutely, absolutely. But it's it, it it is. I think it's a really good opportunity to talk to you today as someone that's working, you know, in the hospital and what you're doing. Because I think there is so much misconception out there about. I think the state of the NHS, what doctors really do, and I think it's an opportunity to give a real insight because I do, when I watch on social media sometimes, I say a lot of people are very supportive, I think generally of doctors and so on, but I think a lot of people, through no fault of their own because they don't live in our eyes or in our heads, yeah. they don't really know mm. how tough it can be. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so talk me through in a bit more detail what an on-call shift can look like. Say we're doing a night shift now and yeah. you're having a nice busy night shift in bed. So what's a typical shift look like and how long do you usually do it? How long's the hours? Uh, so you mean, the way it's structured nowadays, it's usually a 12 to 13 hour shift. And, I mean, even before you get into the stresses of the job, you're already breaking your natural biology to be on that night shift. I mean, you don't, your body doesn't want to be awake, but you have to be. So that's the first hurdle you need to get over, making sure you've got enough rest during the day so you're somewhat alert at night time and fueling yourself for that 12 hours overnight. And then you get into seeing all sorts of horrors potentially at work sort of micro stresses of seeing unwell patients all the time in addition to combating the urge to sleep i think that in itself just for one day let alone four or five nights in a row is incredibly stressful for mind and Brutal. body and you can see why doctors get depression other mental health issues or just burnt out and we're very different obviously individually as well because some people i have friends who do night shifts and they actually perform okay-ish i mean very yeah. rare to have someone that genuinely mm. says that they perform really well on night shifts but i mean personally i really really struggle yeah. with flipping the clock i i i'd say if my hands would say when i was working any i do think i was the worst doctor at night really? and i think i'm generally i'd like to think really? i was a good doctor but i do think that overnight i was always the good thing i was aware i was like i don't feel as alert overnight so i'd always be so we're in the daytime i'd make decisions like bam let's go bam let's do this mm. overnight i was always conscious which i guess is the good part of it is that i'm not as good yeah, so i'd always just... add layers of checking and asking and oh, what do you think of this because i just don't flip well into night mode yeah yeah I, I mean that's the key so you've already done those safeguards yourself to be extra vigilant about you know things you're doing and checks and that's the thing you know you're not going to be the only one i, I struggle with night shifts as well and we're in a profession where, you know, whether it's surgery and a few millimetres here or there can make or break the success of the surgery. If it's life a high-risk surgery, life or death. In A&E, you need to make quick decisions. Mm. Any delay could compromise the outcome. So when you've got those stakes on the line, you want someone like mm. 
if we were athletes playing, you know, a big sport, we would have every metric optimized. Yeah. And we're not having that no. at the moment. No, we're not. And then I think what's and going back to that kind of point around on cause, I mean, so for example, if I was the A&E doctor overnight, I would be with my other colleagues in A&E, seeing the patients. Now we send the vast, the vast majority of people we see in A&E, we send home, mm, generally yeah. speaking. And that's how the system should be, because hopefully most people aren't sick enough, they need to come in. We can either deal with the problems there and then, or they can be seen as outpatients. But for the patients that need to come in and the general surgery, so that could be a really wide range of issues. <laughs> yeah. You guys have to come down, see the patient, decide if you think they need to be brought in, yeah. bring them in and either operate overnight or stabilize them overnight on the wards. Yeah. And yeah. if you end up in theater, you might have a sick patient on the ward yeah. while you're operating. I remember doing um, some on calls as a junior doctor for a registrar like yourself. Yeah. And it's stressful because <sighs> you're like, oh gosh, I've got to go to theater with you. And I'm also thinking, oh my gosh, there's a patient on that ward. There's a lot, and you also might be having four or five bleaks for referrals oh in A&E, and then A&E is calling you saying, uh, why are you not down here? And you're going into theatre. It's, yeah. a, it's a juggling act, isn't it? I mean, this, this is all just, literally what you've described there is bread and butter shift. So, you know, it, it's very easy for, you know, specialists, whether you're a general surgeon, an orthopod, an orthopaedic surgeon who deals with bones or whatever you are, to have this tunnel vision and that you've only got your problem, but actually, you know, I've had my arguments with other specialties and other specialties have had arguments with me and emergency room, but actually I need to be mindful of their sort mm. of stresses and worries and urgent tasks they need to do. And so I'll be operating overnight, say midnight for an emergency case. Mm. While I'm operating, I need to be focused. I'm getting a flurry of bleeps through, which is distracting, yeah. distracting me from the surgery. At the same time, A&E are getting worried because there's an unwell patient with a surgical problem in A&E and I'm scrubbed, I can't leave the surgery. Uh, my junior's probably scrubbed with me. Yeah. Sometimes if it's really tricky, the boss, the consultant will be scrubbed with me as well. So there's no one available. Available. So, I mean, the system is just a bit clunky. It's so, it's so stretched at that point. Well, and also the important thing to say as well is that you might have a situation where, so essentially, you know, overnight um, on a department, so for example, general surgery, mm. you'd have, usually you'd have a foundation doctor, an F1 yeah. potentially. Sometimes you don't have an F1 overnight. Yeah. But you'll have an F1, hopefully, uh, an SHO, so a senior house officer, someone with a bit more experience. And that person might be varied. It might be someone with two years' experience yes. or five or six. Yeah, exactly. So someone that could literally almost independently operate yeah. to a degree on minor yeah. things or Absolutely. someone that's completely fresh to surgery. Yeah. So you could be end up in a situation where you're the registrar overnight, so you're the senior surgeon overnight, yeah. with a potentially very junior foundation doctor and a junior SHO. And all of a sudden, yeah. there's even more pressure because then you think, oh, gosh, I've got to be mindful yeah, that I've got to look after this SHO because you can't expect them to make decisions that they're not safe to do yeah. while you're operating and dealing with someone that's coming that needs abdominal surgery overnight. Yeah, and it's all it's all about it's a careful balance act because like you said, some hospitals you may have that F1 or the senior house officer as well as a uh, registrar. In some smaller hospitals, you just might have an SHO and the registrar or an F1, the most junior doctor and the registrar and you need to look after their well-being. Yes your well-being, uh, their education to some degree. Uh, so kind of take them through cases and not just use them as a sort of an admin scribe, you know, involve them in the thing so they learn something as well. Um, but also you need to take care of the patient. So you've got yeah. multiple facets to juggle overnight. And, you know, often junior doctors, I mean, I remember when I first started nights on surgery, it's a high-paced environment and you can struggle. You can get, uh, you can drown under the you know, pressure of the job because 
if your registrar, your senior, is tied up for several hours in surgery, all the you know stuff comes onto you. Yeah. The nurses on the wards are bleeping you, yeah. and it might be a task that's beyond your ability for yeah. that stage. Uh, a and E are calling you to make senior decisions, which you can't. Uh, it's a minefield. It can be really difficult, and that's where when people go, well, how does it end up having? To, why do you have fractious relationships in the hospital and difficulties between departments? I mean, then that's because ultimately the system is under so much pressure. If you have a backlog in one bit, it becomes a nightmare. So, for example, if I saw a patient, say I saw a young lady uh, examined her abdomen and your clinical signs and examination, say right, I'm certain it's an appendicitis. Yeah. I'm really worried. This patient's sick. You know, I'm there. I'm worried about the patient. I'm calling you. Yeah. And then you guys, but you. You've got your own stuff to deal with and you can see how the pressures build because it's not like what you're dealing with is someone's health and you're and ultimately you you know that it falls on your head doesn't it and that's what's that's what's so hard so when we're talking about pressure on hospital systems it's not just something that's brand new i think it's been there for a very long time but the problem is at the moment is that the pressure is just increasing and increasing and increasing and what we're seeing is a huge amount of staff leaving we're seeing junior doctors leaving we're seeing nurses especially in places like london mm. leaving the profession altogether yeah and that leaves the existing workforce under even more pressure yeah shortchanged i mean the thing is right you know at the end of the day no one comes into you know, life as a doctor, expecting that they're going into that career just for the riches. Now, let's get this straight. <laughs> you're in the wrong job. You're in the wrong job. You can make a lot of money at the end of it once you're fully trained up and if you want to do private work. And you're, yeah, you know, you're exactly. Life. So it's a, it's exactly. It's a sort of a, a profession where you bloom very late. You know, when you're in your 50s and 60s as a surgeon, that's when you're most valuable. But then most of your life years, you know, you're you spent your years. Good years. Yeah. But the thing is, I've lost count of the number of nurses and doctors throughout my career that have gone to greener pastures america australia new zealand etc dubai the middle east and the thing is you know i think sometimes there's this element of uh emotional guilt tripping that happens when doctors sometimes ask for more money or a pay rise or even pay restoration as what's going on right now and it's looked upon unfavorably like oh you would strike and compromise uh, patient care for the sake of more money but the thing is we also, you know, there is no nobility in sacrificing your hours, which you could spend on yourself or your family. For your life. You're giving your up life. your life. Yeah. Do you know, I, I find it, uh, to give this point, right, and I, and I do get frustrated. I mean, in the, you've got to put those two things aside, right? Are doctors generally, if you compare to the average person, paid relatively well? Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But when you actually factor in that the training they have to do and the fact, let's be honest, that doctors make up the top 1% of the most highly skilled and trained individuals, mm. are they paid well? No, they're paid absolutely terribly. Yeah. You also divide the time they spend in training, the money they spend on training, yes. hours they work, and then you work at the hourly rate and it's below yeah. minimum wage, quite frankly. And the pressures that they're taking, and the pressures which your average job wouldn't have no, those It's life on death. It is, it is yeah. literally life. You could, for example, people go, oh, yeah, but how often your life is death? Right. If you're a junior doctor, F1 doctor in the ward, and you're prescribed yeah. medication, if you prescribe uh, a penicillin to a penicillin allergic patient, you mm. could kill that patient. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So doing the, even the most routine things, there's an element of risk. And if you think about this, so when I started working, so I graduated in 2015. When did you start? Uh, 2014. 2014. Yeah. So I started in 2015. I started on, I think it was £24,000 in yeah, London. Yeah, something about right? the same, yeah. So I was paying over half of my wage each month in London in rent. Wow, yeah. And the rest I had to kind of it's like incredible. count the pennies and live on, okay? And what is really interesting is that if you look, and I, one of my consultants has been working for a long time, said this to me, he said, this, is, this really highlights the issue. 
if you go back 15, 20 years before I started, doctors also started on 24, 24, yeah. 5,000 pounds. And at that time, if you were working in London Bridge, you could get a flat in London Bridge for about 75 Cheap, grand. Yeah, exactly. That flat is now about 1 million pounds. Oh God, yeah. And you Higher can't probably. loan, it's not, it's not three or four times your salary, it's three or 400 times your salary or whatever, you know, 20, 40 times, whatever. It's a ridiculous number of multiplications of your salary. So the problem is, is that over the years, because there's been no, essentially no rise in pay, yeah. the, the doctors have become, you, you've entered a point where you're like, why am I doing this? You know, I've got friends, you know, I've got, I know for fact, you can work, say you work in the, as a doctor for 10 years, you might, if you're lucky, after 10 years, be earning 60 grand, right? Yeah. Friends in equivalent professions of equivalent level of education might be on three, four hundred thousand pounds oh, at yeah. that point. So I've got friends who work in the city, in law, and other professions who are earning huge amounts more. And like you say, it's not that doc doctors don't go into the profession because they want to earn three hundred thousand pounds, but they want to be able to have some element of reasonable remuneration for yeah. the sacrifices you make. Because you sacrifice Christmases, you sacrifice evenings, you sacrifice weekends. You work in hospitals where, let's be absolutely frank, the working environment's poor. Yeah, I mean, it's not a great working environment in a hospital, is at it? At the end of the day, like you said, you know, as a doctor, when you go into the job, you know that you're going to sacrifice, you know, friends' birthdays, yeah. friends' weddings. I've missed three friends' weddings in the last three years. All of these things you voluntarily undertake, but you also expect some degree of decent uh, respect as well as pay. Yes. And you know, it's not really pay. Let's get that straight as well. For a long time. Doctors, and still in some places, doctors are paying for parking. The canteen food isn't subsidised. It's the expensive and rubbish. It's ru <laughs> it's exactly. I can say that because I don't work in the hospital anymore, I'm being honest. I mean, I remember um, one particular shift where I was working. Um, at this point, I was doing 12 days in a row. The law's mm. slightly changed now, but it was 12 days in a row where I did. Um, I was getting into the hospital about 8 in the morning, leaving about 6.30 every day. I had to do one on-call during the week, and then during the weekend, it was 13-hour days, mm. and then back onto a full week. No rest yeah. day, just yeah, 12 yeah, days, yeah. right? Uh, you'll know them well. So um, I remember this was on the Saturday, and I had been I got in really early, even earlier than I needed to be, the patients were all so sick. There were so many jobs. I knew already that I wouldn't get a chance to wee, yeah. let alone have oh food. God, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I ran quickly. This is about two o'clock in the afternoon, having not stopped since 7.30 that morning, into the patient's like kitchen room. Yeah. Got a plastic cup and I put some coffee granules and some hot water in with milk. That was the first bit of liquid I'd had all day. God. And the manager had just come onto the ward, one of the hospital managers, um, they were doing like their rounds or whatever, which is on a Saturday, isn't it? No, not nothing. <laughs> they were there on a Saturday. Um, and so they said, they said, boy, they started dressing, <laughs> boy, what do you think you're doing? I said, I said, oh, I'm just having some uh, coffee. This, bear in mind, this instant coffee. An instant coffee, because I, I literally haven't stopped. That, that isn't yours, that's for the patients. Don't you ever do that again. And I said, listen, don't start by calling me boy. Yeah. I'm not a boy, I'm here working. I said, I've worked, working ridiculous hours. I'm literally having, I said, you know what then? I'll tell you what, you hold the bleep, I'll go for an hour lunch break. So I'm, I'm supposed to have it, you're not paying me for that. You know, right? it's mandatory, isn't it? You know, uh, so there is an element, and I'm not doing that because I'm trying to, I love to work in hospital. I loved my job in A&E. And that is the point, is that people will, if you give them reasonable respect, and your people respect and appreciate the NHS and the doctors yeah, and the nurses and a reasonable level of remuneration, then we will take all amounts of trouble. Yeah. Won't we? We'll do it. We'll, we'll deal with all of that stuff with a smile yeah, on our listen, face. Listen, I mean, the thing is, more often than not, 
you know, doctors, nurses, any healthcare professional will always go above and beyond the call of duty, whether it's staying an extra few hours to finish that emergency surgery, there's a cardiac arrest going on just as you finish your shift and you're staying on to do the you know, chest compressions. Regularly, people are sacrificing their free hours without pay, yes. and that's fine, but sometimes there's elements of that's taken advantage of because they know they take advantage of the goodwill of healthcare professionals to further extract more work. And your point, your story that's about the manager who asked you not to drink the instant coffee, exactly similar episode, three or four years ago, I was doing a busy shift with a few of my colleagues. And actually, if you did an unethical experiment and you took blood tests from every doctor and every nurse doing a busy shift, you would see an association between transient dehydration and hypoglycemia on shifts and you know on course shifts because we don't eat or drink no i went to the patient uh, fridge uh, and there was a sandwich there because the canteen was closed i just missed the canteen there were no vending machines where i could get anything no shops were open oh. so me and my junior who'd been working non-stop for 10 hours without anything to eat or drink we just took couple of sandwiches and realistically what is the price of that sandwich at retail price probably 50p something like that and these aren't marks and spencer sandwiches either it was just two, <laughs> two very thin wafer thin Dry slices of bread with some cheese inside i just needed some calories to sustain me and to continue operating and saving lives exactly quite literally. and as soon as i sat down to eat it i took one bite and you know one of the i don't know charge people in the hospital yeah, yeah. said no that's the patient's fridge you're not allowed to take anything from that um, and you know, I, I hate getting into arguments. So literally, I just put, you know, she asked me to put it in the bin, a half-eaten sandwich. I was like, who wins? No one wins there. The patient can't eat that, and now neither can I. Well, it's literally every option is is taken from you, and and I think um, I can feel it, in, and and I actually am reflecting and talking. I can feel it in myself, and people mm. are probably listening, going, oh my gosh, you're really frustrated about this, and it's like yes, because we say it from a position that we care and love the NHS. I think it is a fantastic, mm. what we have is a fantastic institution, but we're seeing something being whittled away over the years and we're seeing a decline. You know, I, I again, and uh, I think make, we'll make sure part two is a very positive <laughs> view of <laughs> things. But you know, Lewisham Hospital where, where I worked in, um, we see almost twice as many patients as they did 15, 20 years ago, double mm. during the day. Mm, yeah. And the numbers of staff that work on shift, you know, those haven't doubled. I think it has increased a little bit, but you don't have the, the capacity as no. then. Even if yeah. the staff is bolstered well, and actually I must say Lewisham genuinely is a really great, great trust. It's run by fantastic consultants, and I stayed there because I yeah. thought it was a great department. So mm. actually they're a really good example of how to do it well. But even for those consultants then, they're working with a limited number of beds. So yeah. there's a doubling of patients coming in. Is limited. But you haven't got double the beds. So they've yeah. made some more space for beds. They have. They've constructed a bit more space, but you've not doubled that space. So we're, no. so what happens? People queue. People wait. There's nowhere. A classic problem in A and E, which is probably one of our most frustrating things, is I've got a patient. I've got nowhere to see them. Yeah. How exactly. often does it happen? Oh, so I time. need to do an abdominal exam. Or I need to do an intimate exam on a patient. Whatever. There's nowhere to see them. No privacy. So no bed. The thing is, I think these issues have been there plaguing the NHS for decades, but actually the pandemic and COVID highlighted these flaws and they were under the spotlight and it showed the pressures on the infrastructure, the pressures on the staff, the managers, the entire system. And like you said, it's not going to be fixed by just pumping in more staff. You need to change the entire infrastructure right from the IT softwares to the number of spaces, the number of equipments, ventilators, CT scans, the 
more money needed in social care to get patients who are medically well out of the hospital to create more space so it's multifactorial and you know honestly I don't think it's going to be a quick fix. This is a decades-long fix that's needed, and we need to start that now. I think an important, I just pull out, just to kind of pull out of what you just said there, an important one to illustrate or to take the point is is around IT. So yeah, uh, <laughs> we don't work with advanced softwares or whatever <laughs> a lot of the time. We're lucky sometimes. It's often black and white screens. Uh, you're lucky to have um, enough computers to actually access. So physically in A and E, you're often waiting for a computer to free up because there's only yeah. three so right like 10 doctors and then you're all fighting over the same computer it often crashes do you know how much time i've wasted oh trying to print paper yeah if i added up how many hours in a and e i was running around trying to fix printers imagine like imagine if people could see a and e doctors trying to fix printers and unable one printer in a and e when it breaks no one can do anything and also, why are we... Chaos! I'm still sending referrals sometimes to other specialties in different hospitals via fax. Why are we using fax? Well, another thing as well, we see it very often again, a classic A&E issue. Patient comes in, they have a chronic illness, maybe they have a chronic abdominal illness. Um, I want to see old images because I need to work out whether yeah. I think this is chronic new, do I need to do further imaging? Try and get hold of those images. It might be a hospital, five minutes down the road, but do we have access to the images? Of course we don't. You know, if there's one thing I could change about the NHS, which is actually a tangible change and doesn't require decades of work, it would be changing the IT software. So you don't have 10 different systems for each hospital and another 10 systems for different hospitals. One unified system. Nationalized, the same system, so everyone can access all the records of that patient anywhere in the country. Because it might say, so, for a good, so people go, well, is it that big a deal to rescan? Well, when you do a CT of your head, that's, radi that's radiation. Oh God, yeah. If I need to do a CT and you've fallen, I will do that CT. Yeah. But if I, it's a matter of I'm doing the CT because I cannot access uh, your records and I'm not sure and therefore yeah, it's, it's I have poor to, practice, it's not it? great is it? No, it's you're not doing great. it against the guidelines, you're doing it because you don't have access to possibly a recent scan and the thing is this is how we over investigate patients, we wrongly investigate patients because they may have an entire medical history in another hospital which would be very useful to just say actually this is the problem yes. but instead we've started a whole new trail of investigations patients frustrated they get over investigated complications can arise and like you said more radiation more unnecessary tests more complications for the patient and it's it's not right no it's not right well guys we've absolutely dived in but we've dived in it's with heat on this it's ironic because it's you know? so slow but it, it and i think for there's a they will i can guarantee that whether you're a doctor or a nurse listening to this or a patient yeah. or someone that's worked as an allied healthcare professional oh, yeah. or otherwise oh we've got we've got a we've got, we we've got a potential we might need a surgeon we might need a surgeon here we've got a we've got a, a, a polytrauma yeah polytrauma three of them flying down hurtling down the hill on a and a contraption I believe is supposed to be a toboggan. Is it toboggan yeah. that word or? Uh, no, yeah. is it Bob toboggan no, bobsleigh? Bob yeah, no, you're right. Is it a national bobsleigh? But there's no injuries to report. No trauma call needed. God, we're terrible. That's terrible medic chat, isn't it? Guys, I hope you've enjoyed this. I mean, look, we dived in here and I know, I think you can feel from what we're saying, we're speaking the truth. And I think it's, the it's public passion know rather than the truth. anger. It's yes. passion due to frustration because we do want to see this healthcare yes. organization prosper. We care. If we didn't yeah, care, we get... we'd walk away from it. Yeah. So I hope you can feel our passion and a shout out to any nurses listening right now. We're all with you, aren't we? Absolutely. We're behind I, mean, you I fully support striking if you need to strike and same, I'd expect the same reciprocation when junior doctors want to strike and the other yeah. healthcare professionals will support that as well. It takes a lot 
for any healthcare professional to strike. So think about what they've yeah, been pushed absolutely. to. Guys, thank you so much for listening to part one. We'll dive into part two now. Where we're going to jump into a bit of your kind of work-life balance, shall we say, and how, <laughs> and how the TikTok star came to be. Thank you once again to Fitflop for sponsoring this episode and making sure our feet are looked after, whether we're wandering in the woods or lounging by the fire after a hard stomp. Head over to fitflop.com to check out Fitflop's outdoor shoes and trainers, as well as the slippers and slides. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this episode, me and Dr. Karen. If you're not finished stomping yet, make sure to go and listen to part two now. Come back to catch up on tomorrow's stomp. Enjoy building snowmen. See you soon. 